What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Copy Blogger Podcast. My name is Tim Stoddard. Thank you so much for joining us. As always, I am with my friend and my co-host, Ethan Brooks. Ethan, how are you? Friend and co-host this week. I'm moving up. (laughs) Now we're friends. (laughs) (laughs) And we have a very special guest with us this week. We are very excited to have a conversation with Lexi Grant. Lexi, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, it's going to be fun. We have a little bit of, not not a confession, but we were joking a little bit on Twitter before you jumped onto Zoom. We have referenced you so many times over the last couple episodes that I feel like finally having you on here, we've been like fangirling about your work uh, for a couple of weeks. So I'm like, I need to just start off with a compliment that, um, that we love what you're doing and it's, oh, it's very great and it's inspiring and, and we're excited to have you here. Thanks. Well, I I love what you guys covered too. So some good synergies. Okay. So we're going to get right to it. We listened to a podcast interview that you did recently and you talked about that. Which one? It's Ryan Tansom, the Intentional Growth Podcast. Mm -hmm. I, I thought it was fascinating because in there you mentioned that so many founders don't even know that exiting is an option. Exiting their company, their media brand, their website. I am one of these people. Like I've, I've been spending the last 10 years of my life building these brands and I've built this, this portfolio of these media companies. And, and I'm at the point now where I start thinking to myself, like, where does this go? How do I start the process of, of maybe exiting some of these companies? And, uh, you've been working the last couple months or, or maybe even years on your podcast that they got acquired all about this concept of, of taking a media brand understanding that it doesn't have to be some giant like billion dollar company and that there are possibilities to exit. So the first question is 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 pretty open ended. Like what are some examples that you've seen of this? And if I'm somebody that has, you know, maybe a 20,000 person email subscriber list and I'm I'm thinking about like how do how do I exit this company? What mm-hmm. are some examples that you've seen here? Yeah, I mean, I you're not alone because I think once you go through it once you kind of have an eye on an exit later, but a lot of entrepreneurs who haven't sold before, first of all, often people will get, get an opportunity, like they'll get approached. And then suddenly, like they're on this like (laughs) learning curve. I have to figure out what the heck I'm doing and how do I do it well? So in terms of examples, it's funny because they got acquired, (laughs) also a media company, and we're about, we're working on our first paid product, which is going to be a list of content companies that have sold. So that people like you who want to be able to sell yours can look at it for inspiration or even for examples of like, what are their metrics to these other companies? Were they putting up when they, when they sold beyond, well beyond like how much did they sell for, which is one metric, one piece yeah. of data, but you know, what other metrics are they? Sorry, before you get into yep. it, can I just add a little bit more context to this because yeah. uh, when you said this on the podcast, it absolutely hooked me. And by the way, anybody will link to that episode in the show notes because everybody should go listen to it. It was a great interview. And we want to, we're going to skip some of the background on who you are just because we've covered you a few times and people can hear that on other shows. But inside that interview, you had said something to the effect of like, all, there's a whole bunch of founders. Like one of the reasons you started TGA or they got acquired is because there's so many founders who they don't even realize they can exit. So they just shut these companies down. And I think you had maybe mentioned uh, an example. Somebody had sold for like 180 grand, but selling wasn't even on her radar before mm-hmm. a certain point. I think there's a lot of people listening to this who may be in that boat as well. So could you maybe 
yeah, maybe talk us through what was that? What was that example? And yes. what are some other examples you've seen of people who have gone through this? Yeah. So that one is uh, top of mind for me because it's our podcast that comes out on Monday. So we're just putting the finishing touches on it now. It's an amazing story. I think it's our best episode yet. The, the woman, her name is Lauren Gaggioli, which I had to pronounce properly on the podcast myself. <laughs> um, and she ran a, a company called Higher Scores Test Prep. She wasn't sure that she kind of assumed she wouldn't be able to sell it, partly because it was based around her personal brand. And then secondly, because she wasn't, she thought she wasn't making that much money from it. She was bringing in like $60,000 in revenue each year. And she was only working on this about six hours a week. She started out with more, with more hours, but she ended up, she ended up systemizing it pretty well that it was more of like a passive income stream for her. And she, she has young children. So she, during the pandemic, you know, she wasn't <laughs> working at all really. And she, she figured out how to make this engine work on six, six hours a week. She and I actually connected in the early days when I was trying to get They Got Acquired going. And we connected in a Facebook group. And she said, she said something like, you know, someone's put a bug in my ear that I might be able to sell this. Does anyone know anything about like how to sell a company? So I put my hand up and I'm like, hey, find me on Boxer or WhatsApp or something so we can, we can talk about it. I think she'd been so heads down building the business that she didn't recognize the value that she'd created. And she was caught up in the idea that since it revolved around her personal brand, she couldn't sell it, which mm. which can be tricky. But she once she decided to sell it, she sold it quickly. She approached a few people in her space. She was super well networked because this is just a good story. One of the one of the ways she built the brand was through a podcast, and she did a podcast about her site is it's a it's a course business, which is another thing that's interesting. Like people are wondering how do you sell course businesses? It was a course business for teaching. Um, Helping kids get higher scores on the ACT and then SAT. So it's a, a test prep course business. And she was very well networked because she had used, she had grown her audience through a podcast and she interviewed tons of guests. And she ended up reaching out to a few people to say, is anyone interested in buying this brand? And the second person she reached out to bought it for $180,000, which, you know, some people would kind of shrug their shoulders at that. But compare that to shutting down a business that, you know, that, that has also brought you money over the years. I mean, it's a huge win. So I thought that was a great example, both of a much smaller exit than because, you know, we cover six, seven, and eight figure exits. And this is really on the small end of of our scope. And I thought it was just such a great example of, of the whole ethos that I want my company to stand for, which is like, how can you think about growing things differently? You don't have to work yourself into the ground. You don't have to do take the Silicon Valley route. And even if you're, you know, you grow something that has less than a six figure revenue, you can still sell it for meaningful money. I think that's the perfect example because so many of the people that we talk to on CopyBlog are, are in that space where they're making a living, $60,000, dollars a year, doing what they want, you know, like have the lifestyle that they dream of. But there's a, a weird disconnect there between that type of brand that may be tied to a personal brand and selling mm -hmm. digital products that may also be tied to like the the person teaching in like their particular manner so it's, it's connected to them personally mm -hmm. i i think there are probably so many examples thousands of them of people that are in that space thinking like where do i go from here and mm -hmm. to hear that story is really it, it gives me hope but it also makes me excited because I, I just think that's that's a conversation that hasn't been had yet mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. She, I mean, she's never been on a podcast telling her story, wow. you know, before. Like this, 
it's it's funny because when you when you hosting a podcast, it's like you want some guests who are sort of well known because they tend to bring more downloads and more listeners. But then the stuff that gets me excited is like telling a story that's never been told before. That's one of the things that I love about your site too is when you look through the case studies, everything feels very reachable and approachable in a way that I think startup media has not achieved because. I mean, the whole big idea, and everybody can go back and listen to our past episodes we've talked about, they got acquired several times. The big idea is to profile companies that have made exits for six, seven, and eight figures, life-changing money, but not your typical like $200 million sale. And so you go back to the site, you read these stories, and it's all people who like, hey, took a 10,000-person list and ended up selling for six or seven figures or whatever. It feels very approachable. I'm so curious... When you sat down to talk with her, could you talk us through uh, some of the traits that made the company sellable? Like if somebody is sitting here with a company of their own that's maybe making $60,000 and wondering if it's sellable, mm-hmm. what are some of the boxes that they would have to check in order to come up with a yes on that? Yeah, it's funny because I asked her once we went through whole, our whole story. I said, so logistically, like what did you have to do to get your site your company in shape for a sale. And she's like, nothing really. I really had done most of it. You know, I think she just hadn't even given herself credit for it. But one of the pieces is just boxing it up so you can hand it over to someone else. So some of that is about, you know, creating processes so that they can follow them if they want to. Being really organized <laughs> uh, so that you can hand everything over to that person. Well she she had to have, you know, numbers to share with a buyer. So all the finances had to be squared away. And I think for people like this, like often entrepreneurs in this, the, the range that we cover, people who play in that space, they often tend to have more than one business. Not always, but a lot of times we do. And I think one mistake a lot of founders make is lumping all of their financials into one bucket, which it doesn't matter if you do that. Like it can, it can be that way in your bank account, as long as on paper, you've really well tracked what are your expenses and your, what revenue you're bringing in for each business. Each line of business needs to be tracked separately so that you can you can share those those numbers with a potential buyer. This might be a broad question, but are there any traits that would have made it an automatic no? Like when people sit down to look at a business, it sounds like as long as there's revenue and you can kind of hand over the assets and hand over the financials, you have a sellable asset. Is that accurate? Or is there like a certain mm-hmm. thing where you're like, ah, sorry, even though you're making money, this is just not going to sell? Good question. And I say that because it's not easy to answer. I feel like usually when I say good questions, because it's hard to answer. Um, <laughs> Bad questions. I mean, I think some people would say personal brand makes it hard to sell, but she sold a personal brand. So it's obviously not uh, impossible. I think you have to think about how does your personal brand affect the business? Like if your personal brand is what's doing the selling, then that, that can be hard to pass off to someone else. So that's almost like, yeah, you have revenue, but will that continue after I acquire this? Mm-hmm. Yes. And also like the biggest question is how... How can the buyer benefit from what you're what you're passing over to them? Because they're not necessarily going to use it in the same way that you did. In fact, they probably won't. They're going to change it in some ways. And, and sometimes if you have a strategic buyer, they might use it in a totally different way. So like I was talking earlier today with a woman who's thinking about how to position her uh, media company for sale. And she was asking me all about like, how do you value it? Um, what are the multiples? And I said, the thing that really matters is like, what will the... The person who buys this, what are they going to do with it? And they're going to use your audience to sell their product to those people. And how much money can they make by selling their product to your list? So that that's that is the answers the question of like, what is it worth to them? Is 
what can they do with, with your list? What can they accomplish with that? And how much is that list worth if they can market exclusively to it? What I like about your answer is that it highlights how uh, much of a gray area there is in business sales. And this comes around to another philosophy of yours that I'd really like to dig into. This is something that you talked about with Ryan, which is not relying on standard multiples when you price out a business for sale. So the idea that you'd shared was, it's very common for people to go to sell a business and then they kind of just say, okay, well, e-com stores sell for X multiple. And so that's, I'm doing this much revenue, I'm doing this much profit, therefore my business is worth this much. And it sounds like your position is, well, actually, if you focus too much on the multiple, you could underprice yourself. You need to be a little bit Mm -hmm. more strategic and intentional when pricing your company. Can you talk us through your ideas there a little more? And just how do you price a business when you're getting ready to sell it? Or how do you think about price? Yeah, I mean, exactly what I just said, which is you've, you've got to think about what is it worth to the other person? So I compare this. And by the way, I'm not an M&A expert. So <laughs> when Ryan and I were talking about this, he was like, I, I kind of take issue with some of the things you're saying. Like we didn't totally see eye to eye on everything here. This is my personal experience from selling small companies and also from seeing other people do it, which is I think there's too much talk around multiples. Like it's a nice guiding point. And it gives you a sense of what it might be worth. But you know, if I had focused on multiples in the content industry, I would have drastically undersold myself on my last sale. Like that doesn't that's not always, that's not the be all end all. So think about what is it worth to someone else? And if you're going to go sell your house in the neighborhood, you might look at comps of what other houses in the neighborhood sold for. But in the end, none of that really matters. It doesn't directly affect the cost of your house. What matters is how much you're willing to part for when you sell your house, like how much you're willing to sell it for, whatever feels good to you, and how much someone else is willing to pay for it. And if there's someone who really wants your house for some crazy reason, they, you know, their best friend lives next door and they're just dying to have their house, it might be worth two times as much as, 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 you know, the ones in your neighborhood. So I, I think like just thinking about it that way, and it's really, they call it a strategic buyer who is yeah. going to buy your business, who is going to do something strategically with it. And I, the, the point is like, instead of it being one plus one equals two, it's one plus one equals three or four or five. How can you ha- find a buyer who's going to do something with their business that's going to give them so much more value? that they're willing to pay beyond the traditional multiple. This is perfect timing for this because as you've been talking, I've been taking notes for a very specific reason. Believe it or not, I own a test prep company. Um, (laughs) (laughs) We have a a brand called LSAT, Mm -hmm. LSAT Clarity. There's a, a test called the LSAT for attorneys in the States. I know, I don't know if it's in other countries as well. Um, it's a very, very difficult test to pass. And so people take practice tests and courses to learn how to pass the LSAT so that they can more or less pass the bar. And we've been working on this company for a while. And it's where you mentioned, you know, I personally put 25 grand into it to get it started. Got the boost. The SEO is, is there's a couple brands that actually sell the courses that rank ahead of us in, in organic search. And it's difficult to beat them for like their own product, you know, but we're always right underneath them. So other than those examples, we're, we're number one across the board. And we're to the point where we're like, unless we start marketing in other ways, how can we possibly get this thing any bigger? Like we own the search. And we know that for some of these these test prep companies that are actually sell on the product that we're essentially selling through affiliate, mm-hmm. there's nowhere else for us to go. And so we've been having this conversation for for the last month, thinking, well, we go on Flippa and you know, it's like times 30x multiple you can get for. And then I say to myself, yeah, but you have to have like the one person 
that strategic buyer, like you said, that would actually do that. And I, and I see that. And I think it's a little bit overwhelming for, like we were talking about before, to somebody that's got a newsletter, like mm-hmm. 20,000 subscribers, somebody that has been writing on a blog and posting on Twitter for the past couple of years about like their gardening brand or whatever the case is. So I know we've been on this like M&A topic for a little bit. I want to I want to transition a little to the... Well, let me, hold on. Let me give you a tiny mm-hmm. bit of advice because this Please. has been really interesting to me. And since we started, they got acquired. You know, we're building this database. We have about 1,200 entries so far of, of deals that fit our criteria. Wow. And one thing that's been really interesting to me is, you know, when someone goes to sell a business, obviously there's, there's the marketplace route. You can list it somewhere. You can get yeah. a broker. Who, who might help you connect with a buyer. But there's tons of companies that where the founder finds someone in their own network and often it's through a cold pitch. And this is one of the products that I want us to do with getting there, which is like just profiling some of the companies that have, have cold pitched their buyer. They're cold pitched their way to an acquisition. And we have a number of stories like that on the website already, but I want to bundle them together and get specific on how to do that. But it's it's just basically like researching who might be interested in this and who who's a bigger in the industry or competitor who might want this and cold pitching them and asking them. And, and sometimes you can get a better deal doing that even than going some of the other routes. Um, it, it, even more so if you can get, I mean, the best case scenario is you get several people interested yeah. and that's when you can really leverage th- that interest to get a higher price. Hmm. Uh, before we move on real quick, could we... We've talked a little bit about how to dis or how to think about whether or not your business is sellable, how to think about who might want to buy it. You've mentioned a few actionable steps, like you need to make sure that you have your finances available, that those can be shared. And ideally that the business is set up in such a way that the functional or like operational aspects can be passed off. But if I decide that I'm going to sell something, like what are the first two or three things that I do from there? Is it just cold outreach and be like, find those potential buyers and say, hey, I think I want to sell this. Are you interested in buying it? Or do I go out and find an attorney first? What is, and I know you're not an M&A expert, but yeah. being somebody who's well, been through this a couple of times, what what yeah. advice would you share to somebody in that position? Well, I take one step back and say, think about why do you want to sell and ha- have you maximized revenue? Because even though, you know, I don't think multiples are everything, your revenue was going to play a big role in how much somebody else wants to pay for your company. So if you're thinking about like, do I want to sell in a year or two? Like if you don't need to sell tomorrow and you have a little time, I would think about, is there a way to maximize revenue? I mean, that's always the goal of a business. But for some reason, sometimes when someone knows that you're doing it to prepare for a sale, it's like more of a motivating factor to say, oh, we should do this. We've been thinking about forever. That's an easy win. Like, let's get that in shape before we sell it. So thinking about have you maximized your revenue before you pass it off to someone is a good, like do that ahead of time. There's a couple of things you can do. If you're in a bigger business, like say uh, seven figures in revenue, I would recommend you know finding some sort of M and A advisor who can help you prepare for the sale, and they'll probably eventually help you find a buyer too. But they will suggest things you can do now to prepare ahead of time and maximize the value of your business when you do so. And then in terms of like looking for a buyer, yeah, I think I think thinking about starting to do some cold outreach and just getting those conversations started. If you're at that point where you want to move, you want to move on it. I think that makes sense, especially because I would do that before getting a broker. And I think a broker can be a great example in or a great resource in some situations. Like they kind of get a bad rap, but they also often can help you find the right people and they might even like help you sell it for more than you could sell it yourself because they're incentivized because they get a commission, right? 
So it can definitely be a good route, but I usually suggest if you have the time and the ambition to think about first about how you would directly work with a buyer. And then, yeah, you need to get a lawyer in place, but you don't, you don't really need a lawyer until you figure out if you actually have a buyer. That's great advice. And I also love what you, so people thinking about this can combine some of the things we've talked about here so far. If you are one to two years out from an acquisition, maybe that's a good time to start that podcast on the side where you start talking to people yeah. who are potential acquirers as well. Put yourself in a good position to create that bidding war when you do go to sell. I'm interested in TGA itself because we've we've mentioned a few times how much you have done in such a short amount of time with like a, a relatively small list. I mean that as a compliment uh, in every which way. You're a pro at this. Sometimes when I, I see your past successes, I think to myself, like, why she even bother starting another brand? And that's how I know that we have so much in common because I would, I would do the same thing, right? So I, I want to hear about how they got acquired, went from idea to we got something and, and we're doing it. Did you have like a white light moment where you thought this would be a good idea? Is this something that you kind of slowly worked yourself into? How did the brand take shape? Yeah, it was definitely more of a slow working into it. Partly because I was forced to take to do that because <laughs> when um, I sold my last company during the pandemic and, you know, my kids were home a lot, I didn't have a lot of work time. And then we went into the summer and my husband and I looked at each other and we're like, we just didn't want to do that thing again where you're having to juggle trying to work and also trying to watch the kids. We knew they're going to be off for a bunch of time for a bunch of time. So we ended up just taking a road trip and just both taking off for a while. So all this to say, like I would have probably in my ideal world, jumped right into a new project. Yeah. And I was forced to take a lot more time and move more slowly. But I think in retrospect, it was a good thing because it gave me a lot of time to think about whether this is really what I wanted to do. And then I ju jumped into it once my kids went back to school in September of last year. I knew I wanted to do something that used my skills, which is really in media. The question was like, what was the best way to do that? And I experimented with a bunch of things um, in the year prior to, to starting this. For example, I tried, I did some consulting, like helping some, some other companies grow their writing teams to see if I enjoyed doing that. Mm. And I just like batted around a lot of ideas. I put a lot of ideas up on kernel, K E R N dot A L. That's a place for startup ideas. Um, I'm not as active now anymore there because I'm working on one idea, <laughs> but when I was thinking about ideas, I used to put a lot up there. So I did a lot of thinking about like what would, what would be exciting to me? Because the truth is like, I am really passionate about this idea, but I don't believe that there's only like, I'm passionate about the building process. Yeah. Like, I'm not the kind of person where I can only do one company. And I, that's like, I'm going to give my whole soul to that. And that's all I'm doing for the rest of my life. Like, I know I'm not going to probably do this one forever. It's, it's really fun. And I, I love doing it right now, but I, I think of the, the process of the building is the part that I enjoy. And, and I'm passionate about our mission too, but it's, it's not like this is the only product that could ever build. So I wanted to pick something and, and, and actually acknowledging that was like helpful for me because it didn't have to be like the perfect choice, whatever yeah. I did next. Because there's a lot of pressure, especially after you sell business. It's like, what do you do next? And you have to make a decision. And it feels like, oh, I'm putting all my effort into something. I, I really wanted to, to challenge myself because I knew if I was already, if I was using my skills in media, there's got to be something new to it that seems like fun and I can, I can learn. And the two things that were new to me here are M&A. Like I am our target market because I've gone through this myself and I know the pain points, but I'm not an expert in M&A. And through this project, I get to learn a lot about it and surrounding myself with people who are experts. And then secondly, 
we're monetizing through a database and I hadn't done that before. So for me, it's a new way to monetize as well. You said this a couple of times in different interviews too, which is a, a large part of this of the reason for this project is that you've gone through several exits. You know some of the pain points. I'm really curious, is there anything that you're doing differently as you're building this in order to sidestep some of those pain points in the future? So like what what are some of the biggest pain points that you've run into that really led to the creation of this? Mm-hmm. And are you doing anything different as you build this in order to sidestep those in the case that one day you eventually sell it? I think any business I built, I would I think I'm process oriented now, but I don't plan to sell like what I'm building. I'm not building this to sell it. I'm building it because I enjoy building it. But I mean, any business, I would always, from the beginning, just the same things we talked about earlier, track track finances really well and document processes really well. Those are the two things. And have a good brand, a strong brand. But ironically, all the things you need to do to sell a business are the same things you need to do to build a business that you want to actually keep. (laughs) So it, it all works towards the goal anyways. And your first question was... Just related to what what are some of those pain points? Oh, the uh, ones. Yeah. Yes. So one of them was finding professionals who could help me because it, I found it difficult. And mind you, there's tons of them, but I didn't know where to look. People who would who were happy to help with a six or seven figure deal. So I'm talking about like a lawyer, like a lot of the lawyers they do, they might do bigger deals or, or an M&A advisor. Um, any of these folks, they, a lot of them prefer to do bigger deals because they make more money. <laughs> and, and I didn't know how to find people who would do this size of a deal. And I, we're in the very early stages of this, but we're slowly putting together, you know, lists of different types of professionals who could help somebody so that if when you are ready, you're like, oh, here's, I know I can go to this lawyer. Or for example, you know, I'm starting to get a handle on certain M&A firms that specialize in, in different types of sales. Like there's one that I can think of that sells digital agencies. And I had a friend of mine who was thinking about selling his agency and he was asking me for Rex. And I said, oh yeah, actually there's a firm that specializes in that exact thing. And it's just like, you have to, you have to know the space, you know, and, and, and someone who's been building their business for all those years is not going to know the M&A space. Yeah. Like once again, that's, that's why I'm in this podcast to ask you questions for our audience, but also like for me, Mm -hmm. because I'm, I'm at this like really interesting point in my life where I think, do I just ride these out into the sunset forever, mm-hmm. you know, or do I, cause it, it's, it's like emotional too. I don't think that gets talked about enough. Like I dedicated my life to building my agency and mm-hmm. my employees and all that. And so it gets to the point where you think do I do this the rest of my life or do I make a big change, which ties into my, my next question, because my agency is very, very mission driven. We work in a specific specific field, which I'm very, very passionate about, and it, it helps a lot of people, and it does a lot of really good work. And you had mentioned earlier that you want to do something that's specific to your mission. And and what is that mission? Have you defined it? Is there like a, a tagline that you've come up with that you keep in the forefront of your mind? What's What's the point, I guess? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I need to work on my elevator pitch, my tagline, to be totally honest. I've been trying out different <laughs> yeah, things here and there. It's hard <laughs> in the beginning. It's hard. But I mean, the mission is pretty clear to me, which is I want to lift up underrepresented founders. And I consider Amazing. the definition of that to be pretty broad. So it's, you know, definitely women. I am like, one of my personal missions is to lift up other women in business. And so we go out of our way, like we are hustling hard to try and find female founders who have sold their business, which is a challenge because I have found that women aren't as e- eager or willing to share that big success as men are. 
So, you know, my goal with the content is I try to have at least one female founder on the site every week. And, you know, we're mostly hitting that, but it's, it's hard and it requires like really distinct focus to get there. But I think there are other ways to think about underrepresented founders too. Like even bootstrap founders, to me, that hits the mark because they're not talked about as much and they're certainly not featured as much and older founders. So anyone who's just doing things a little bit differently, like founders who are like me working 30 hours a week or, or 20 hours a week or 10 hours a week. So just people who are doing it differently. So that our mission is pretty clear is, is lifting up underrepresented founders. But yeah, I got a, the tagline still working on it. <laughs> and here's what will happen. As soon as you think about it, you'll put it on the website. And then like a month later, you'll look at it again. And you're like, Oh, I think I need to change it. So, <laughs> you know, so I, I feel your pain. And Underrepresented founders, I think, is so important because, as is the case in in like most things in life, that's most of the people, right? Mm-hmm. Like the stories that you hear yeah. on Bloomberg or whatever, like those are anomalies. That's like the very, very, very what was it called? Like long tail end of mm-hmm. what we see and hear about, and like the the bell curve, the eighty percent of the people that are building businesses that are looking for this solution. That's that's like everybody, yeah. right? And so that's why I'm excited to talk about this. But like, I'm excited for you because I really, really feel like you're onto something that, like I said in the beginning, like the conversation hasn't really been had. And I think there's a lot of people that their ears are going to perk up to this. You'd be like, wait a minute. You know, like, I can sell my business. I do 90 grand a year in revenue. Like, I can cash out on this thing and put like 300 grand in my pocket. Like, hell yeah. <laughs> that's awesome, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, you're right. And I, I think like part of it is normalizing building a little yeah. bit differently because the truth is, yeah, lots of us fall into this bucket, but because we're not featured as much, sometimes you feel like you're building on your own <laughs> when, when you're doing that, you know, you don't really know how to reach out or find other people who are thinking about it in this way. Even just like the bootstrap community, you know, it's sometimes you feel like you're the only person bootstrapping because you read tons of stories about all these raises and it's just, the truth is that lots of people are bootstrapping. I think there's also a, like a big education component and like a cutting through the bullshit component too, mm-hmm. which is another reason that I'm so glad to see you guys building what you're building. Because like anybody who's behind the scenes or even just in it knows that like actually raising millions of dollars isn't always that desirable uh, because of the way that it can change like your goals and the culture inside the company. Or, you know, even just simple things. Like when people say, oh, we did $20 million last year. Great. What does that actually mean? Like how much did you actually take home? Because you can work 80 hours a week to make $20 million and be broke. And that, mm-hmm. like people who are in it know it. But there's this story that's just projected. And so many people who are just kind of getting into entrepreneurship or thinking of making the leap, I think are unfairly given a version of this world that's just not really that accurate. And so it's nice to see, yeah, it's nice to see that changing. Yeah. And I mean, the truth is there's also tons of companies out there that are bootstrapping and super profitable and will never sell. Um, And, you know, I hope eventually down the line, I could see a world where we cover those types of companies too, because the acquisition is just one point in time and it's a starting point for us, but I don't want to over glamorize that either because that, and there's for a lot of people, like the selling process doesn't go great. And, Mm -hmm. And it's hard to tell those stories because it's tricky, you know? (laughs) <laughs> yeah. People ask us about this at, at Trends too. We're trying to figure out a, a good path into this. Like instead of telling success stories all the time, can you can you tell me totally. some failure stories? 
because that's kind of the funny thing is like everybody who's got that win has way more failure stories mm -hmm. than success stories. How can we start mining some of those, you know, mm -hmm. and like sharing, sharing those lessons with people? You mentioned something really interesting where I keyed in on just one thing you said, the uh, acquisition aspect is just a starting point. And it's an important, I guess, note because you guys are still in the very early phases of this. I'm really curious about how you're thinking about certain types of growth early on here. You've been vocal about one thing, which is like, I, th I find you to be incredibly thoughtful about KPIs. You choose your KPIs very well, thoughtfully. You don't mm -hmm. just kind of absentmindedly pick revenue growth or something like that. So I would love for you to talk us through a little bit of how you're thinking about choosing those KPIs right now. Mm -hmm. And then after, I'd like to get into SEO specifically, because this is one area where I'm very curious to get your thoughts. You're kind of an expert there. And I'm, I'm keen to know how you're setting up. They got acquired for like long-term SEO success. But mm -hmm. before that, what, how are you thinking about KPIs right now? What are you tracking? Yeah, we, we're pretty much tracking email subscribers, which is my like always on my list. And I feel like I, I, I really, I, I need to hire someone at this point to help with it because it's not growing as fast as I would like. We're still growing, but we haven't done paid media yet. So um, yeah. we definitely need to put more money or, and, and more time and effort into it. But yeah, that's the number one thing we're tracking. I really, I never look at website traffic. I think eventually that might become important, but we're so early right now that all that really matters to me is whether, whether you know, our email list is growing. You know, we also have a podcast and this is the first time I've ever been in charge of a podcast. <laughs> uh, and, and we have a producer who's, who's created it. Like I haven't created it. She's done it, but we look at the metrics for that. And again, I, I, it's so early days that especially with the podcast, I don't consider, I don't care about downloads. Uh, I really care about the quality in the early days mm. because my goal with the podcast is to use it to garner trust in the brand. And so what I consider success is when we get notes of people saying, this was so great. Like the quality of this is great. I learned something. I'm going to keep listening. And to me that, that brings someone loyal, like it turns someone who might've been a casual reader into a loyal listener. And that's the goal. So I kind of feel like right now it's just, it's so early that, yeah, the things that matter are basically email subscribers and, and revenue too. But right now we're not bringing enough money to cover our expenses. So like I'm watching that in terms of like, when can we, when will we start covering expenses? When will we start breaking even? Fascinating. Yeah. I think that's so important. And again, it kind of comes back to this idea that we talked about, about like, reconsidering the narratives that you get just by default if you pay too much attention to mainstream storytelling in the startup space mm -hmm. you'll learn that like oh well you know it's revenue growth is number one or maybe users or something like that and i just like how you're thoughtful about that i admire your seo knowledge and i'd be curious to know how are you what are you looking at in order to set this new site up for like seo success yeah I love this stuff and I think it's really fun. I don't really consider myself an expert in SEO. <laughs> I have a guy who does who does SEO stuff for me when I when I need help planning, who's really great. And he's he is my North Star for this stuff. But I like executing it. And so what we're doing for They Got Acquired, this is the first time that I've thought about SEO for a brand from the very beginning. The Right Life, which I sold last year, did really well in SEO. We did a few things in the early days, but it was mostly just because we had put out great content over the years and so much of it. Yeah. And then in the later years we started optimizing, which helped. And we had we had, you know, great 
um, an age domain, which helped. Well, we have we have an SEO strategy. So we have two types of content on the site. One type is deal stories. So they're stories of companies that have sold. And for those, we're doing kind of the basic for SEO in terms of we basically just we, we figure that what it's most likely to rank for is the name of the company or the, the, the company that sold or the company that bought or the founder of the company that sold. Yeah. So we we do a little bit to optimize for those keywords and just some best practices. Like we try to throw an H2 in with, with the keyword, even though it's um, they're often pretty short. So my, my belief with SEO is like 80-20 is the way to go. There's a million things that you can do. There's It's never ending the amount of things you can do, but you're never going to get them all done. And it just doesn't make sense right now. So do the low hanging fruit and see where that gets you. And then you can take the posts that have done well and make them do even better. So the second type of content on our site are advice and resource posts. So these are posts about like how to navigate a sale and all the aspects of it. And those are the ones where we're heavily going after different keywords. Some of them are writing just because we want to cover the topic on the site. But then some of them are writing because the SEO expert that I work with pulled a list and said, hey, you could try to rank for these different keywords and here's how we try to do it. But they're all really small volume keywords. They're not huge in this space. And it just takes a long time to to do well with SEO. It's like really a long, long-term game. The other important piece is, well, backlinks. And I mean, I think the best thing that we're doing right now is I, I've had so many podcast interview requests. Yeah. And I really don't consider myself a great speaker. I'm much more of a writer and I prefer to write, but I've been trying to say yes to them. I've been doing like one a week. And I think that will help us get these backlinks in the early days. And I mean, having a few, we had a, uh, like we got covered in the New York Times after our launch, which was really nice. So that was a high DR backlink. So we really need to get more of those, but you know, we'll get there eventually. You and I have such a similar approach on anything. There's two silos to your site, basically. There's like personal stories, which you could pick up keywords for names and companies and like probably secondary keywords about who it's sold to. And and that's cool. And the intent for those will probably like sign up for an email list or listen to your podcast. And that's really awesome. But then there's a, a separate silo, which is like how-to posts and questions really. And although they're a little bit long tail, and the keyword search volume is like relatively low. Like what I always tell people is if you bang out one of those, like even every month, you know, you look down a year later and suddenly you got 12 different keywords of like 30 searches a month that compound on, on itself and they just stack and they stack and they stack. So if, if you got like the guts for it, SEO is, is such a cool play, but it's hard because everybody wants to turn on the faucet. Mm-hmm. And throw some Facebook ads and look at their Google Analytics numbers and be like, "Whoa, I'm going viral," <laughs> you know. But but it's it's that kind of traffic, which especially y- your product, which I think is really brilliant, is it's it's a database really. Like you're selling access to mm-hmm. premier contacts, I suppose is is the way to do mm-hmm. it. It's gonna be super super profitable. I knew a, an esports newsletter that that did the same thing. They built a, a list of like 300 really high profile people that owned like some of these gaming teams and they, they mm-hmm. sold that list for uh, a bunch of money and it was, it was very successful. So I, I, I think you're totally, totally on the right track and I, I co-sign you. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> well, I am very curious to hear 
from you, Lexi, because as Tim mentioned a couple of times, you guys have very similar ways of looking at the world, similar backgrounds. Well, similar, I don't know, similar backgrounds. Before we hit record, you had mentioned that you had some questions about Copy Blogger. And yeah. I'd be curious to hear what some of those are, just to hear you two jam on that for Fun. a while. Yeah, well, I really just wanted to know where Copy Blogger's at now, because I mean, I used to read it years and years and years ago. <laughs> and I wondered what the business model is now and what your what your main products are. Well, I did the same thing. Uh, the, I've, I've told my story on, on the podcast a few times, mostly on my blog I wrote about it, but Copy Blogger was where I learned everything. I am very much like you. You put me on a blank page and I can just be myself and somehow what I'm trying to say just comes out. But like you put me in front of a microphone and I'm like rambling and I'm nervous. And, <laughs> and so I just, I like the writing and it, it really spoke to me. And so Copy Blogger is how I learned how to do everything. It's how I learned how to write on the internet and tell stories and build email lists. And, and it, it was really like my education. So a couple of years ago, I worked really hard the last 10 years and was in a position to basically acquire the majority ownership of it. And so now me and Brian Clark are, are, are still partners. And it was really interesting. I think you'll appreciate this because I, I assumed wrongfully that the game had changed. And people are going to be more interested in like Twitter threads and TikTok and, and even podcasts and stuff. But I was really pleased to learn that writing is still like the rainmakers are still writers. You know, that's, that's what we say. If you can write and you can be persuasive and especially if you can write copy through emails and you know how to build funnels and autoresponders, it's just, in my view, the most valuable skill that there really is right now. And so for context, to answer your question, it's twofold, really. We have a membership site, which is, is going great. And that was really hard because I'm not a product guy. I'm a lead gen guy. I, I make the phone ring. And that's why I like SEO so much, you know? Uh, and so building a product was super hard and super uncomfortable, but I'm, I'm really proud of, of what we did. But on the, on the higher end side, we have our certification, which we're mm -hmm. going to publish in, in a couple of months. But then on top of that, the real sleeper move that we did is we created a copywriting agency uh, called digitalcommerce.com. And since so much of the traffic that comes to Copyblogger is so like reputational and the brand is still like really, really polished, we're, we'll do a million bucks this year. And for an agency within 11 months to get to, you know, 83.3 monthly recurring revenue was a ton of work. It was really, really hard. But uh, it's it's really, really worked out. And it's been a hell of an adventure. I'm ready for a break. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> How many That's people why do I you love have? this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> How many people do you have? Working? Yeah, working for you. Well, how do you run an agency? Do you know Johnny Naster? I recognize the name. You, you um, might. In, in Copywriter's heyday, when mm -hmm. Rainmaker FM was the podcast network, he mm -hmm. was one of the podcasters on there that I, mm -hmm. I used to listen to. And he just had a boutique agency and I followed him a lot because it's pretty easy to start an SEO agency. It's pretty difficult to build like a good one that actually generates results to know what they're doing. And so I, I followed this guy and when I bought Copyblogger, I bought like a, a couple assets and digital commerce was actually the website they used to host all the courses and like Copyblogger was kind of the media that sent them to digital commerce. And I thought, damn, that's a really great name for an agency digital commerce partners. And so I just approached Johnny and I said, Hey, let's turn copy logger into a lead gen and mm -hmm. let's partner on an agency. And, mm -hmm. um, and so 
he runs that whole thing. I, I, I have my own agency. I, I can't do two. That's, that's madness. No way. <laughs> <laughs> cool. That's really cool. Yeah. It's cool to see like, the brand still around. Yeah. It was very scary. And I'm happy that people like you are, are, are still doing great work and, and showing examples that we can tap into. I'm very happy that Ethan is on this ride with me because I, I couldn't do it without him. And it's going strong. I mean, it's like a DA 80 something website. Yeah, that's and so, <laughs> you know, like we're at 14 right now. So yeah, so you can only go up time. from there. <laughs> it, it takes time for sure. But yeah, I'm, I'm flattered. Thank you so much for the compliment. I like to keep it about the guests, but even still, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that you're paying attention. Thank you. Well, this was great. Lexi, thank you so much for joining us. For the people who are interested, we'll link up to all this in the show notes, but obviously they can check out theygotacquired.com. Um, they can follow you. Is it Alexis Cramp on yep. Twitter? Yep. Anything else? They should, oh, they should definitely check out the pod because I'm listening yes. to it. Yeah. And uh, we got a we got a, a little hint. There's another episode dropping soon, but yep. <laughs> uh, I've obviously listened to all the episodes so far. The one with Sam Parr, fantastic. I've really enjoyed it so far. Thanks. It's been super fun. Yeah. Yeah. It's They Got Acquired just on your podcast player. Yep. And anything else uh, people should know about? Those are the most important ones. Thank you. All right. Thanks, guys. This was fun. And thanks to everybody who listened. We'll see you all next week.